This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 107, Keeping Up with the Macedonians. Today's episode is so filled with speculation and caveats that I think I better just lay out the sequence of events right here at the start to avoid confusion. So, Michael III, the son of Theophilus, is your emperor. From the age of two to 16, his mother rules for him. From 16 to 26, his uncle Bardas rules for him. During this time, Michael allows Bardas to claim the title of Caesar, essentially making him co-emperor, and should anything happen to him, his successor. Also during that decade, Michael becomes best friends with the head of his stables, Basil the Macedonian. Basil and Michael were extremely close, and eventually, Michael made Basil his chamberlain, meaning Basil lived with Michael. With Bardas growing ever more powerful, Michael and Basil concluded that they must get rid of him. So in 866, they murdered him. And it was the muscular Basil who did the actual killing, and in gratitude, Michael promoted him to be the new Caesar, and actually crowned him co-emperor. Apparently, having learnt no lesson from what had just happened with Bardas, Michael soon became wary of Basil. Sharing the throne just wasn't an option, and just over a year after he was crowned, Basil murdered Michael and became emperor of the Romans. Basil had no noble ancestry. He was not a general. He had no justification for what he'd done. He was the peasant emperor, a chancer who'd brutally seized the throne. So, naturally, his children and grandchildren commissioned several historians to write a more favourable account of his grubby rise to power. Hence why Michael III is dismissed as a wastrel and a fool, and is given the nickname The Drunkard. Let's rewind and put some flesh on those bones. We know very little about Michael's actual personality 
or attitude to government. Because he let Bardas and then Basil assume such high positions, it's easy to conclude that he was weak-willed and pathetic. But there's nothing specifically wrong with allowing better men than yourself to take charge of various aspects of administration. And it's possible that until Basil came along, Michael and his uncle had a solid functioning relationship. However, we must note that very few emperors allowed their favourites the title of Caesar, for obvious reasons. In fact, most of the men we've followed have disinherited, exiled, mutilated, or killed anyone who might plausibly have a claim on the succession. To allow Bardas and then Basil such an exalted position was very dangerous, and in the end, fatal. Pop psychology would point to Michael's childhood in the palace with no father figure to guide him. His mother would have kept influential men away. Whether he was easily led or had a craving for paternal influence, he paid the ultimate price for trusting too much. The drunkard nickname comes from the historians commissioned by Basil's offspring. Here is the picture they paint. A party boy from his youth, Michael was obsessed with chariot racing, gambling and drinking. He emptied the treasury, lavishing thousands of pounds of gold on his favourites, particularly champion charioteers, and he even took part in the games himself. On one occasion, Michael actually had the beacons, warning of an Arab raid, disconnected so that the capital's residents wouldn't be distracted while watching him race. On another, he ran out of cash and melted down all of Theophilus's golden automata to pay his bills. And my personal favourite, the time Michael and his drinking buddies dressed up as clergy from the Archia Sophia. His jester put on the patriarch's vestments and they danced around the streets, singing lewd versions of the liturgy and offering communion to passers-by using mustard and vinegar. That's really all we're told about him, and these stories seem blatantly fabricated. Some modern historians have suggested that this caricature was borrowed from the portraits of Mark Antony and Nero. Byzantine historians often attempted to allude to famous words from the past to demonstrate their learning. The biographies of emperors who'd been thoroughly discredited by the historians of their day provided a natural template. Michael could be labelled the drunkard, not fit to rule and thus justify Basil's usurpation. Probably, therefore, there is truth in the descriptions of Michael. Most likely he did spend time partying and watching the races, while Bardas took care of government. But one of those modern writers argues that perhaps Mark Antony was chosen as a model because Michael shared his positive as well as his negative qualities. So maybe Michael was known for being brave, popular, and generous, as Antony was. We know he went on campaign a couple of times, and no evidence exists of particular unpopularity, 
Presumably, he shared the credit with Bardas for the battlefield triumphs and the conversion of the Bulgars. This guesswork doesn't totally rehabilitate Michael, but it suggests a weak or uninvolved emperor rather than one who actually did anything particularly wrong. Let's leave Michael there for a moment, though, and bring Basil the Macedonian fully into the story. As Basil was from an obscure family in the Balkans, there is much debate about his actual origins. But modern conjecture is that he was from an Armenian family who had been settled in the theme of Macedonia, hence the Macedonian. And to be clear, as those of you checking the maps will know, the theme of Macedonia was nowhere near historical Macedonia. It was very much in historical Thrace, not far from Constantinople. Basil was likely from an ordinary farming family and born in the early 830s, which would make him eight or nine years older than the Emperor Michael. The only thing that seems to have been special about Basil was his physique. He was a powerfully built man, and this strength would help him win friends and influence people when he arrived in the capital. He probably appeared there in his early 20s, seeking money which could help support his family back home. It didn't take him long to win over a couple of wealthy patrons, one of whom was a wealthy widow, which could be interpreted in a salacious way, but who knows. Two legendary stories are told about how Basil came to imperial attention. One is that he wrestled and defeated a Bulgar champion, much to the delight of the partisan Romans. The other is that he broke in a stubborn horse for Michael while working in the imperial stables. Probably both have some basis in truth because Basil was a physical specimen and he did then find work with the royal horses. It was in this role that the emperor and the man who would kill him became close. If Michael did love chariot racing and gave gifts to his favourites, then it's not difficult to imagine how Basil would have impressed him. An older brother figure who indulged his passions and could teach the emperor a thing or two about hunting and riding. Basil's charm quickly won the emperor's trust, and he was made head of the imperial stables in 857. His predecessor in that job was part of the conspiracy hatched by the Empress Theodora to kill Bardas. A cynical reading of that situation might lead one to wonder if Basil tipped off Michael about what was going on. But there's no proof of that. In this job, Basil would have been in almost daily contact with Michael and it becomes clear that the two men were extremely close. Two years later, Basil was given the court title Spatharokanthidatos, indicating his place in the emperor's entourage, and he seems to have been left in charge of rebuilding Ancyra's citadel while Michael campaigned further east. Around 862, though, the strangest promotion of all came, Bardas, now Caesar, 
fell out with Michael's Grand Chamberlain and had him dismissed. Basil was promoted into the role and made a nobleman with the highest rank of patrician. Now, as you probably know, chamberlains in the palace were almost always eunuchs. Their role allowed them to move freely about the personal apartments of the imperial family, and only eunuchs who owed their loyalty directly to the sitting regime were usually trusted with that kind of access. To grant that right to a fully functioning man like Basil was dangerous on several accounts. The post of Grand Chamberlain meant that on many occasions the occupant would spend the night in the same room as the emperor, guarding the door and attending to his master's needs. The actual Greek term for this role is parakimominos, which translates as the one who sleeps beside. This was a most unusual arrangement and prompts the obvious question, was this a homosexual relationship? Both Basil and Michael carried on heterosexual relationships throughout their lives, but that proves nothing. The anti-Michael sources insinuate he was fond of handsome men, as we shall see, but they probably couldn't go any further without slandering Basil, which obviously was the opposite of what they were trying to achieve. It's impossible to know if there was more to their intimacy than just close friendship. I don't think sexual attraction is necessary to explain Michael's fondness for Basil, but it can't be ruled out. Nor can we say for certain which of the two men first suggested killing Uncle Bardas. It's easy to assume that the crafty Basil saw a way to rise further by poisoning Michael's mind. But once Bardas was made Caesar, it's entirely possible that Michael became paranoid and Basil simply cooperated in a plot which the Emperor would have hatched anyway. We now return to the narrative where we left it last episode. In 866, Bardas announced he wanted to retake Crete from the Arabs. After his spectacular success in the East three years earlier, this campaign could push Bardas into Belisarius territory. Michael agreed, and land and sea forces began to gather in the Thracision in the spring. Once there, Bardas arrived for a morning briefing at Michael's tent, and as he discussed the readiness of the armada, Basil pulled out a sword and hacked him down. Basil had brought his brothers in from Macedonia to form a trusted entourage, and they now sprang forward to finish the general off. With the deed done, Michael announced to his startled army that Bardas had plotted against him. He also told them that the campaign was cancelled and they should return to their posts. It seems as if the whole campaign was just a ruse to get Bardas to drop his guard, which some have guessed meant he was already suspicious of Basil. Upon returning to the capital, the Macedonian was soon rewarded by being crowned co-emperor. It was an extraordinary promotion, both for a man who was just a stable hand a few years ago, and in view of the power it handed him so soon 
after the Caesar Bardas had officially committed treason. Again, the obvious supposition is that Basil agitated for promotion. It is hard to imagine a scenario where Basil demurred the honour, but Michael insisted he become the partner of his labours. As with the rest of this story, we don't know what caused the two men to drift apart. Did Michael realise his mistake soon afterwards? Did the absence of Bardas suddenly thrust unwanted responsibilities onto his plate? Did Basil's demeanour change now that he was august? Did Basil instantly start plotting to go the whole hog and kill his patron? The tale that comes down to us is that the following September, 867, at a feast, Michael had a few cups of wine and then asked a handsome nobleman, who had charmed him, to try on some of the imperial regalia. Basil objected to this slur on the office, and Michael rebuked him publicly, saying, I could make this man emperor tomorrow, and don't you forget it, or words to that effect. If there's any truth in that story, then it becomes clear why Basil began plotting to eliminate his partner. Later that month, at another banquet at the Palace of St. Mamus, Basil got Michael nice and drunk. And while the son of Theophilus was toasting the world, Basil snuck off to the Vasilev's bedroom and tampered with the bolts so that it could not be properly locked. That night, with Michael sound asleep, Basil and his cronies burst in, killed the guard, and murdered the emperor. Michael was about 27 years old and had been officially in charge of the empire for 11 years. How much credit he can take for the government's successes, we'll never know. It's impossible to judge from this story at what point Basil dreamt solo imperial dreams. He was obviously capable and ambitious, but whether he plotted against Bardas and Michael maliciously, or just reacted to the situation, we don't know. He would go on to be a capable emperor, but nothing from that period sways me one way or the other about his earlier years. What it does tell me, though, is twofold. One is that he must have been immersing himself in the business of government during his years in the palace, it's plausible that he had no formal education and so would have had to learn to read and write while an adult in the capital. To then become a competent emperor suggests he'd studied hard. And second is that he must have been very charming and persuasive. To murder the legitimate emperor in his sleep and present yourself as a worthy Christian ruler the next morning is a heck of a move. Something we'll explore in detail next episode. Despite all the caveats I've given you so far, we haven't even got to the confusing part yet. What makes the question about Basil and Michael's relationship so interesting is what happened to the women in their lives. As you may recall, Theodora married young Michael off to a woman called Eudocia Decapolis. Uh, 
But Michael was already in love with his mistress, Eudocia Ingerina. Apparently, Michael continued to see his lover while ignoring his wife. Ten years into his marriage, neither woman had given birth. Basil was apparently married to a girl from Macedonia, and suddenly in 865 he divorced her and sent her back home with a nice settlement, and then soon afterwards he married Eudocia Ingerina, Michael's supposed mistress. At this point, Basil was Grand Chamberlain, and the rumour was that it was a fake marriage. Michael, wanting to have his cake nearby and eat it too, had come up with a great scheme. Basil would marry his mistress. That way she could move into the palace and live next door. Those of you who listened to episode 77, the second fundraising episode, may remember that the emperor and empress had separate apartments in the palace, So even though this situation would be utterly humiliating for the Empress, it's not like Michael's mistress would ever be directly in her face. In theory, then, the public would go on believing in the imperial marriage, but behind the scenes, Michael could spend more time with his real love. Eager to please, Basil went along with it and was compensated for his cuckolding with a mistress of his own. Shortly afterwards, Eudocia Ingerina started giving birth. She had two boys, Constantine and Leo, before Michael was murdered, and a third, Stephen, who she may have been pregnant with when Basil made his move. Now, this story is obviously not reported by the historians commissioned to write pro-Basil works, but it is mentioned by others who act as if this rumour was common knowledge. They, of course, may simply be slurring Basil, but it seems to be something that was widely believed at the time. Many modern historians think it also fits the sequence of events which followed. So if this story is accurate, then Michael's desire to promote Basil to Caesar has a twist, Instead of foolishly elevating a rival, his concern was actually for his children, the ones being born to Eudocia Ingerina. They would now grow up as imperial princes, and when Michael dies, they would inherit the throne. Rather than take this clever theory at face value, though, we should pursue alternative explanations. Why is it, for example, that Eudocia Ingerina did not have any children between 855, when she was already Michael's mistress, and ten years later, when she married Basil? I'm sure we can all come up with some creative explanations, but it's possible that she was involved with the emperor when she was young, but didn't actually continue a relationship with him. And it's possible that she really did marry Basil legitimately and that all her children were his. Perhaps, ten years on, Michael viewed her more as an old friend and suggested that Basil marry her to improve Basil's standing at court. Even if we accept the cuckold pseudo-marriage story, Michael didn't need to make Basil emperor to ensure his children would inherit the throne. He could have adopted them. Or if you want to go down into the mud, perhaps Eudocia was with both men and the parentage of the children is truly tangled. 
But given that Michael already promoted Bardas to Caesar, it doesn't require the children to get involved for us to imagine why he might promote Basil to the same heights. We'll discuss paternity plenty more when the narrative moves forward, but we'll close today with the issue of dynasties. You'll recall that the previous dynasty, the Leo III, Constantine V, Irene I, was known as the Isaurian dynasty, even though their origins were in Syria. Here we have another interesting naming issue. Traditionally, Michael's murder is seen as the end of the Amorian dynasty. The line began with Michael of Amorium murdering Leo V. His son Theophilus then took over, and now Michael III is its end. Basil founds the Macedonian dynasty, which will rule Byzantium until 1056, which is an amazing achievement. But if Basil's son Leo, who will be your next emperor, was actually Michael's son, then perhaps it is the Amorian dynasty, which actually runs uninterrupted from 820 into the 11th century. I'm afraid I'm not here to rewrite historical conventions. And despite evidence to the contrary, Leo seems to have believed that Basil was his father, and so the Macedonians will retain their traditional dating on this podcast. But more on that next time. The Amorian dynasty then begins and ends with brutal murder. Considering that Michael II killed his friend Leo to ascend to the throne, there is no little irony in seeing his grandson Michael III butchered by his friend 47 years later. In the meantime, though, the Amorians did a decent job of ruling the empire. They reigned during a difficult century. The Romans were assaulted on every front, and they held the line. Without knowing it, they also helped steward Byzantium toward its recovery, a recovery which the Macedonians will take full credit for. Thank you so much to those of you who've bought the new Byzantine Stories episode about Simeon the Stylite. Simeon was a monk who stood on a pillar for decades, becoming a major site of pilgrimage for Syrian Christians and those beyond. But the stories written about him are filled with miracles. Whole books uh, are chock full of supernatural stories about all the things Simeon did on God's behalf. And that was definitely the most interesting part of the research. Simeon was a real person, but if we assume that miracles don't actually happen, then where do these stories come from? And investigating the origins of those miraculous events, healing the sick or driving out demons, that was fascinating. Check it out for yourself, of course, at thehistoryofbyzantium.com. And if you have any trouble accessing the episodes or your feed, drop me a line at thehistoryofbyzantium at gmail.com. If you've bought a subscription already, you should be getting this episode. And a couple of people... Uh, have messaged me to say it's not shown up and they had to delete their feed and then resubscribe and then it appeared. I know that's a drag, but the episode is definitely there. And if you have listened to the episode, then let me know what you think uh, on Facebook, Twitter, the webpage, or on email. Uh, it would help guide me in the future to know what you did or didn't enjoy. 
Thanks again for all your support and for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done.